Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I'm your host, Tony Heil, council member in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that I have spoken with guests across the country at all levels of government from borough council and school board up to state legislature and all the way up to U.S. Senate, um, but not beyond yet, even though Joe Biden should definitely do this podcast. Um, one of my favorite podcasts, uh, some of my favorite podcasts have been out west in California and other places. And uh, I'm excited today to talk to a new guest from California. He is the mayor of Emeryville, uh, and he's got some interesting things to talk about with the issues going on there, what you can do in local office, um, you know, housing and other issues. His name is John Bowders, and I'm looking forward to have, becoming best friends. So, John, thanks for talking today. Thanks for having me, Tony. And then before we recorded, I, t- I was saying that here in Bridgeport it is 37 degrees. And again, what t- what's the temperature there? Roughly, probably about just over sixty. Ah, oh, man. So, like, <laughs> I, I I know that in California, no one's allowed to go outside, probably. But um, <laughs> in reality, are people like outside enjoying the weather, enjoying the sun, even now? Yes, I came in to do this podcast, and I will go back out as soon as we're done. See, I know, and I know from following you on Twitter, you like the outdoors, and I've been liking the outdoors more during COVID because it's like the easier thing to do and free, but. It's hard to like the outdoors as much for me when it's 35 degrees outside. Well, you know, every, everyone has their preferences. I don't happen to mind snow and cold. I don't miss shoveling driveways. Um, but other than that, uh, I will take my warm and balmy Januarys. That's been good for my health. Great. So the thing I want to talk to you about is something else you enjoy, which is running for office. And people don't just do that on the spur of the moment for the, for the most part. Maybe they do. Um, but have you always been political? Has anything in your in your life kind of spurred you on to, um, you know, be part of different issues, campaigns, etc.? Or um, has it just been always been your life? I've I have I have always been political or politically engaged, but I did not always necessarily want to run for office. Um, so I can think back. I I supported um, and I door knocked in high school for candidates for. Congress, and uh, I was in student government. I was on the Judicial Council as an undergrad in college, and uh, I was chair of the Judicial Council that oversaw elections, actually, at Mm -hmm. the university. And uh, so I've definitely been involved, but uh, um, I would say, you know, there were a handful of uh, life issues that really colored my mindset um, when I decided to run for office. So I, uh, I came out as a LGBT community member back when I was uh, in my teens in the 90s, and uh, I was really met with uh, no support, uh, mm. community support. No, no, didn't have much family support either, to be honest with you, but I definitely uh, saw how government works for some classes of people and not all classes of people, and I lived with that for quite a while in my uh, young adulthood and into my early adulthood in different ways. And you can just think back to any number of large American narratives we've had around um, marriage equality or other issues uh, over time where, you know, you have to almost be engaged in politics if you're, um, if you're from a class of people whose rights are um, potentially subject to the question of others or the decision of others. Um, but for me, in, in my case, about what ultimately led me to run, um, I also was somebody who lived with some housing and security issues as an adult and uh, spent time in Southern California before I moved up here to the Bay Area. I was living in a boarding house and really struggled to find places to rent that were affordable to me. And years later, when I lived up here in Emeryville, I attended a public meeting about a proposed affordable housing building. 
And uh, there were a lot of questions at the Q&A about, um, well, what kind of person would move here and who would live there and mm -hmm. who is this for? And I was kind of surprised at uh, the reaction that a lot of people had about a housing building. And uh, so I went up to the microphone and I talked about how I would live there and how I thought it was really important and would, would want a place like that. And there were a lot of other people I was friends with who would want to live here, who would benefit from it. And I thought it was a great idea. And I just asked the city to support it. And one of the sitting council members at the time uh, came up at, came up to me after the meeting and handed me her card and asked to um, have coffee with me actually. And so I ended up meeting with her and uh, talking to her and she she asked me if I'd be interested in being appointed to the housing committee in the city. Oh, wow. And uh, so that's how I got my entry into Emeryville politics. I was uh, appointed to the housing committee, which was largely um, homeowners and older folks. And I was definitely not the same demographic and a lot of really interesting discussions over, over my time and tenure in that place. And uh, it, it led to a request from uh, city council as, as to whether I would be interested in serving on the planning commission. Um, and it kind of elevated from there. And then I decided to run for office. I decided to run for city council. And uh, I actually lost the first time I ran. Um, I ran and I lost by about 150 votes and uh, was encouraged by everybody to do it again because very few people really knew who I was or what I was doing at the time and, and the following election and Vincent. Uh, one with the most votes that anybody at that point in city history had ever accumulated. So um, since then, I've, I've, I've um, now in my second term, I've served as the mayor twice now and uh, really enjoy it and wouldn't, couldn't imagine doing anything other than local government, though, to be honest with you. Now, I know, and I guess you know this now, but I know through my experience, there are a lot of people who say, why doesn't the council, whether it's borough council, school board, city council, etc. Why don't they ever involve me or people like me? And a lot of it is because people on council are like, we, we've never seen you come to a meeting. We've never seen you participate. We've never, I've never seen your face or gotten an email from you. So why would I consider you? Is that kind of how that council discussion happened? Like people were just like, finally, someone is here with a different opinion and they're engaged and they're not um, no offense to retirees, they're not someone who is 75 years old and retired and has the time to just come to these things. Was that kind of the uh, the attitude of, yes, we were so excited to have someone interested in doing something? Uh, no, I think I think in the case of the person who reached out to me to start, I think she, she really sincerely um, had deeply held views about uh, progressive views about affordable housing and the need to elevate other voices mm -hmm. around who were sharing that space. So it wasn't maybe just her, you know, in the council chambers who had that perspective and having someone on a committee who, who had a shared um, set of uh, policy priorities around that might be beneficial in terms of running for office. I mean, I, I took uh, a seat um, from a person who uh, retired from serving in public office, who at the time she left was 88 years old and had served for 28 years on the city council. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that in our community, if you look at our current city council, um, four of the five of us are under the age of 50. Um, you know, two, two, two of us are under the age of 40. And so there's, there's kind of been a, um, you know, we have a, we have a significant senior citizen population here, but there's been a lot of support for um, younger blood and younger energy and, and, and new views on things. Cause we did have for a long time, kind of the same people served for between 15 and 25 years 
um, as a cohort on council. And I think that our in our community's case, it may be different elsewhere, but it was just kind of an opportunity to bring in some some new eyes to what we were doing. Now, I just recorded and haven't uploaded, as of this conversation, a podcast with another young man um, who's LGBT from uh, a more rural town in New York. And he um, he ran and won as a somewhat newer person like yourself, said there are a lot of older people. And he was very uh, pleased that a lot of the older people were very happy to get younger people interested in running. And I think there are a lot of people outside of politics who think it's the other way around, that older people want to keep things to themselves. But I'm learning more through my life, through poli- for the podcast, that a lot of the older generations are actually far more welcoming and accepting than people realize. Is that your experience? Uh, that is 100% my experience. I would say my most fervent supporters are senior citizens, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, if, in terms of an age demographic, it is by far older um, Emeryville citizens who reach out to me regularly. I get thank you cards and nice emails and notes from um, residents who've lived here as long as 40 or 50 years who have said some of the sweetest things to me. Um, when I finished my first term as mayor, I, in my first term, I did a monthly community celebration event where Black History Month, I, for example, we had an African-American church choir, our state legislator who's African-American at the time, um, came and spoke. We gave awards to longstanding citizens who had done certain things in our community. We had a essay contest on Black History Month at the school, and uh, I read all the I read all the essays and selected a student to read theirs. And we had kind of a prize for them. And we did something each month in this kind of capacity. And when I finished my term, my last day as mayor, the first time, um, a, a, a several senior citizens actually came to the council meeting and uh, told me that in you know 40 years of being in the city, they'd never seen um, somebody kind of been live in the city and, and really focus on the benefit of the residents and what the residents were doing and, and who they were. And they, they were really grateful. Um, and so I, I've received a lot of um, support from seniors uh, over the years. And, uh, and a lot of them have just re- really leaned in and been open to new ideas and views. I wouldn't view um, all senior citizens by any means as stuck in their ways or unwilling to to try new things. Many of them are uh, very excited about what we're doing. Now, I actually just today got this book, The Super Age, which I, you, if you're listening to this, you can't see, but um, my friend Brad, who I went to high school with, he wrote it, and it's about how places are getting older and, and like across the world, not just in America, not just in these little towns in one way or another. Um, and... One thing he talked about was this uh, acceptance and these intergenerational coalitions um, around Black Lives Matter, he said, and other things. Um, it's been a very big organizing year or two for Black Lives Matter, for other issues. Um, do, is that happening in your area, too, where younger and older coming together on issues where they agree? And maybe the other people in between, they might agree, but maybe they don't have the time, but there's these people together from young and old coming together. Yeah, absolutely. We um, we find that there's a lot of uh, shared interests. I wouldn't say everything is the same. People's life experiences and where they're at in life also are, are, are different at times, but there's um, definitely a, a broader range of support. Emeryville is, a, is on the whole a very progressive community. Mm-hmm. It's a very open and accepting community. Um, I'm, I'm pleased. It's been, we've had since... Let's see. We've had an openly LGBT elected official continuously serving in office on the city council for 25 years now. Wow. Um, yeah, we. This is a community when this we hang the Pan African flag at City Hall 
um, to represent, you know, um, black power and the, the Pan-African movement every February and residents come out, you know, to support it. It's an event that people um, are supportive of. We have a huge pride celebration here in June, seniors, people of all ages, um, married folks, straight couples, they all come like this is very much a, um, a, a, a community that cares about all of its community members. And it's the reason why I remain in this community is because it's extremely inclusive of other people. And to the intergenerational comment, you know, one of one of our big things that we're working on in the city is housing. There's a ton of things we're doing, and I'm sure we could talk about it if you wanted to, housing. But uh, the city sponsored legislation this past year, which was signed into law by Governor Newsom and took effect on January 1st, uh, that actually allowed for the state of California to publicly finance and cities to publicly finance intergenerational housing projects. And so Emeryville is going to be building one of the first of those um, over at 4300 San Pablo, where 80% of the units will be um, for uh, lower and middle income seniors who are eligible for income supportive housing. And 20% of those units will be for um, foster age and homeless youth. Um, so I'm sorry, foster age, foster, and homeless youth who are transition aged coming out of foster or homeless care services. And the idea is that their social and mental wellness of community members is really dependent upon interaction with all types of people. And all the science and health data shows that seniors who are perhaps living alone, who have connections with younger generational um, cohorts, perform much better in living independently. They live longer, healthier. They tend to have uh, dementia at a far lower rate. And likewise, there are a bunch of um, youth who um, faced challenges um, that are not usually of their own making, um, going through the foster care system or being homeless, and they age out of services, um, usually between 23 and 25 in California. And the number one thing is there's no housing affordable to them when they leave, and they have no adult presence in their life. Hmm. And seniors who can benefit from learning how to use their phone to, or computer to contact you know, their, their grandmother, I'm not going to call you senior, but your eight-year-old helping you with your computer to get this meeting started, right? Like there's a generation of folks out there who have those skill sets. And likewise, seniors in return would love someone to just sit and play Scrabble with them or share stories with them. And so we're very excited to be um, in, on the cusp of producing one of these first types of projects in the state, um, because I think that fits with the fabric of who we are as a community, which is really to um, blend people of all ages into our uh, into our space. Now, um, that is an awesome idea. Like, th you didn't just come up with that over the weekend, right? You weren't just, like, no. taking a shower and, like, oh, this is what we should do, right? Like, I come up with a lot of ideas in the shower, but that doesn't. is not one. <laughs> so, like, how did that come up as a, as a solution? It sounds like one of those creative things that any town could try to do. They could. And so, so we can't take credit for having invented the concept there. It has been done elsewhere. So there's a couple of really great examples in Boston, um, in I believe Kansas City, Oregon. There's a few other places that have these projects. They weren't allowed, I won't go into all the technical details of it, but under California fi housing finance law, they weren't allowed to be financed here. You had to build separate buildings on the same property, which just makes the project infeasible. So it wasn't that um, it was a new concept, but my experience um, working, um, being you know housing insecure as a young adult, and then also, um, you know, working in homeless services for over a decade as I did as a direct services outreach provider and working in a homeless shelter, saw and met and worked with people every day who faced these challenges. And we actually had, when I came onto the council, this project was already approved on a city owned parcel to be a senior, 100% senior project. And we were about to put the RFP out right after I got into office. And I, it was a little 
you know, challenging being the new politician at the table, but I asked everybody to not issue the RFP and I said, can we bring it back? And I was at that point no longer on the housing committee. I was the liaison from the council to the housing committee. And I said, I would really like us to discuss this being an intergenerational project. And nobody at staff opposed it, but everyone was kind of like, well, you know, this will just delay getting the project started. And I said, I know, but I really think we have a chance to do something. So the council went along with it. They came, we came back with, you, here's what the idea would be, but it has a legislative issue. I really grateful. I have the best four council colleagues in the world. Um, I really do. I'm very lucky. And um, they 100% supported making this intergenerational. We had a competitive bidding process where developers, affordable developers came, gave us their ideas. We selected to partner with uh, EAH housing out here in California. And then they came back to us a few months later and said, yeah, the state law is a blockade, but we'll be willing to hold off on moving forward with the project if you want to run a bill. And they signed on as supporters of the bill. We ran the bill. It was uh, a bipartisan bill. It was supported and passed. And so now we're moving forward with um, that project. And so it wasn't that I invented it, but I saw that opportunity sitting out there on the table and right when it was a chance to take a vote. And I said, I would really like us to not just keep doing what we're doing, but try something that's innovative and new that's been done a few other places that I think will bring a lot of community wellness to our, our residents. And I'm really excited that it's going to get built. I, I think it's really exciting. And honestly, like, you know, a year ago I was talking to people all about like what they're doing with COVID or talking about, other, and lately I keep hearing all these intergenerational ideas from across the country and it's really um, hopeful. Um, now you are represented by one of the cooler people, I think in state government, Buffy Wicks, right? Like one mm -hmm. awesome name, two awesome person. Um, if someone's listening, they think that if they run for office, especially local office, it can feel isolating. Like, what do we do? You don't think about the levels of government. But how important is it to have a relationship, not just with your fellow council members, but the other levels of government, whether it is above you, technically, with legislature and Congress, or below you, school board, et cetera, whatever, whatever you say above or below. But how important are those relationships to getting things done? And, and how open are people to work together? Oh, they're, they're, they're paramount importance. You have to have relationships with people. There's no kings and queens in this world. And so you, you need to be able to work with people in a democratic society to get things done that make lasting change. And I'm, I refer to Buffy only as friend. Mm -hmm. And so whenever she calls me or I call her, I say, hi, friend. And uh, she's fantastic representative for us here in the East Bay. And uh, she's it goes both ways. She's called me and said, hey, there's a bill on the floor that it impacts, um, for example, it was a card room, and Emeryville is one of the only cities that has a card room. We have this bill that impacts card room. Can you tell me what you think about this bill? And uh, I was like, sure. Got off the phone, called the card room, said, we have a bill. Can I get on the phone with you and talk to you about it? They, We talked about it. I called her back within an hour. This is, this is what they think. We're all good. And we have that relationship. So she's looking out for our community and what, what we need locally, economically, how's, how's our community going to be impacted. And likewise, when it comes to state law, I sit as uh, the county, this, the mayors of Alameda County have appointed me to represent the county at the regional air district board. And I've served there. I'm the current vice chair of the board. And um, in that capacity, we decided we were going to push forward an agenda related to clean air centers because our region is over impacted by wildfire smoke. And we wanted to put some money into developing some clean air centers for people in older housing or who were um, health vulnerable to wildfire smoke impacts and weren't in a place where they could get clean ventilated spaces to develop these regional centers. And uh, I offered at the Air District to uh, contact Buffy and ask her to run that bill for us and champion that issue in the budget. And she did, and it was successful. And um, we got money back down to the Bay Area to put clean air centers together. So 
um, that that relationship is really important. But as you noted, it goes into other directions too. I sit on several regional boards with the mayors of other cities, and you know we have sometimes competing interests, sometimes shared goals, but different needs, and we find ways to work together. And being able to deliver projects to the people of Emeryville is often largely contingent upon having the support at regional boards to approve those things by people I've, you know, got working relationships with from other cities. See, this sounds so much more functional than other states. And <laughs> I, like, as I talk to people in all, in, on every state, like I said, in various levels, and, um, you know, politics becomes so divisive and partisan, um, and sometimes intra-party, especially with the Republican Party, from what I'm learning, there's like the business Republicans and the conspiracy Republicans, etc., but California, from outside of California, has these um, has a bad reputation for whatever reason. Um, do you think like people are just missing the boat that like no, this government's actually much more functional than anyone in the other the rest of the country is willing to accept? I think I think that the non <laughs> the non democratic folks, non democratic party folks, who often are the people who say that about California is spooky and bad. It's because they just disagree with the policies. But the truth is, you know, I, I, I have friends who are Republicans. Um, you know, that's sometimes I, I wonder why they do that to themselves. But I, I have friends who are Republicans and I work with people from all political uh, persuasions because it's less important to me whether you put a, a, an I, a D or an R behind your name. And it's more important to me about um, what you're willing to stand up for and do and how do you actually build community. Out here, yes, we do tend to have kind of a supermajority of um, leaders from one political side of things. I think in the Bay Area, we're just, it is different. I grew up in the Midwest. It is it is different. There's less, um, there's less partisanship over, over the issues, but there is more debating what is the right solution. And we can sometimes appear to be, you know, trapped in hyper-wokeness or whatever people want to call that, like where we're, we look like we're overanalyzing or beating an issue on a on a policy level to death, but I actually think it's a healthy thing to have that discourse. And I don't mind, I would rather have that fight than have these ideological fights about whether or not it's okay to talk about Martin Luther King in schools for that matter. So, you know, that, that's, I'd rather be in a space where we're, we're really focused on delivering things. And if it's about like what that thing is and how to get there, that's okay. It's different to have a conversation about whether or not people should have a right to vote. Yeah. So, you know, okay. yeah. In Pennsylvania are the, the possible, Republican candidate for governor was at the insurrection. So, like, it's a little bit different between our Commonwealth and your state in terms of... Yeah, sorry. Sorry. Uh, well, uh, um, but, you know, I do want to... I, I want to talk about housing again, but one thing I, I wanted to bring up, because it's come up a lot, people say um, they're frustrated with the Democratic Party on the national level because there's a 50-50 Senate, and I think people don't understand the process that 50-50 Senate in Washington is not the same as a supermajority in California. And uh, in terms of what you can do, but people don't really uh, appreciate that the Democratic Party has moved to the more progressive side on most issues. Um, and one of the things that both the Democratic Party and the country has is LGBT rights. Um, even the Republican Party in most places seems to have be, be less bad than they were. Um, not everywhere, not everyone, but just like in terms of the rhetoric and things like that. Uh, you said that you weren't necessarily supported when you came out um, in the 90s. It was not a comfortable place. Do you think that pe younger people today might not appreciate how recent that change has been um, in, in terms of recognition? Because like, Barack Obama, who everyone loved in a lot of ways, he wasn't for gay marriage when he first ran for office. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, that's a really good. That's a really good question. I I think um, I think it's hard to lay at the feet of young young people today. Um, you know whether or not they appreciate what. Uh, I'm afraid I'm becoming the elder gay man. Um, what <laughs> elder elders in the community have dealt with, but I want to put it, I, I frame it through this, like people who were a little older than me, like a gener, like the front end of generation X, like they dealt with the AIDS crisis. Mm -hmm. People before them, you know, couldn't even hold a hand in public. They, there right. was no places for them to meet. So when you, when you think about this, like it's all, I don't mind if they don't, know or appreciate I, I take that word can mean a lot of things right how do they mm -hmm. appreciate something i don't mind because i want them to have the same existence that every person has that straight people have enjoyed largely for a long time which is that they don't have to think about those things that they that they can literally just be themselves and go about their life and i feel grateful to play my own part standing on the shoulders of people who did the work before me right to destigmatize being gay to destigmatize aids to to, you know, to make it really clear, like that this isn't just a gay person's disease and that this is, this is something that is bigger and this actually impacts our whole community. Um, and so dealing with marriage rights and adoption rights and all the things that kind of went on, I mean, I was in law school in Massachusetts, my first, second month or whatever, it was when Goodridge v. Department of Health in Massachusetts came out and gay marriage became legal in Massachusetts when I started law school there. And I was kind of like, what? This has happened, you know, we're at the front end of of, of the country on that issue. And I think today you, you see a discussion about transgender rights, non-binary um, inclusion, you know, th there's a different narrative and it's just the progression of, um, you know, so socializing and equalizing people in a community. Uh, and we've moved past some of these larger barrier issues. And I, I don't know that I would say that they don't appreciate it. I think that they didn't have to live through it, but they're living through these other things like black trans lives have, you know, black trans lives are a very important issue right now in the LGBT community because mm -hmm. we find there's a lot more violence and a predilection to violence and often at the hands of police officers, unfortunately, um, it, you know, towards black trans members of our community than there are white LGBT community members. So there's like, there is a, there's a race issue in the LGBT community that needs to be addressed. And this modern generation is much more willing to discuss it and confront it and, and, and rectify pieces of it. And so I, I appreciate them, right? Like I, I, I appreciate them because I think it goes both ways. I think older, the older I get, the more I see new things being taken on. And I appreciate that someone else is going to be leading that. And so I think that there's a, there's, it kind of goes both ways. I think that, I think that, there is some appreciation. I don't expect them to, to know what I went through or what I lived with um, discrimination in school or in the workplace. I don't expect them to know that. And I don't want them to know it because I dealt with it and I lived through it with the vision that they wouldn't have to. Yeah, it's a great answer. And I appreciate, I appreciate that. And we'll using the word again. And I was thinking about it in terms of the intergenerational bonds you're creating in your community that, you know, if you're in your twenties or thirties or teens now, you aren't separated out by someone who's in their 80s and you can learn from their lessons, often painful lessons. Um, but again, the reason I reached out to you was housing and you had this one great solution. People are very, people around the country like to talk about California and housing because they like to dig on California for whatever reason. But if you, if, if someone is to run for office and whether it's in a city that is my size, which is like 5,000 people or your size, which is bigger or bigger than that, like Philadelphia. Um, 
what kind of things in any level of government would you say people can focus on to make a difference on making housing more available and affordable? Mm. Like, are there, what are the top barriers you think that, that people could work on? Well, I think the first thing is to protect the housing people have first. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, it's, you know, there's, there's kind of a couple levels of disparity, but a lot of it comes back to whether you're a property or a landowner versus you're a tenant on property. And the rights that we have, there's often, you know, you'll often hear landlords and I did landlord tenant law for a decade as an attorney. So I, I, I kind of uh, laugh, but there's always landlords and their attorneys were like, well, the tenants have all the rights and the, all, all the laws are written to protect the tenants. And the, the truth of the matter is that um, actually the vast majority of rights rest with property owners and landowners. And when you think about it, when you have a public meeting about, oh, this parcel is being, you know, proposed to be developed into something, it's all the other landowners who show up and object to it, right? Um, and so once you're in, like you're golden, like you pull the ladder up behind you and nobody else can get into the community. And it's really about educating the public, like a place was made for you, right? We make, we need to make places for other people, right? This like, that's a principle of inclusion. That's just a general community principle, right? right? Like we wouldn't, we wouldn't ex- exclude you from a discussion about these other things that may not directly involve you, or you may not be the demographic and, you know, impacted right like we won't exclude you from those things right so why would we exclude you know tenants and other people who are looking for places to live from a discussion about their desire to be part of our community we should be we should we should be happy in my opinion we should be happy that people want to be part of our community Mm -hmm. and so it's it's really about kind of starting there and you know that involves um you know tenant protection ordinances that involves just cause eviction ordinances um that that putting rights into the hands of people. So we have a whole suite of policies and ordinances in the city that um, are designed and oriented around protecting people and preserving housing for them where they're at. And then you have, you have, uh, you know, placemaking and uh, production. So the city, the city gets involved in the development of housing in a couple different ways. One, uh, we own several properties that we are developing into uh, affordable housing because we want to make sure that working families, lower income people, uh, can, can live near their jobs, can, you know, walk to school like other people and not drive an hour from another community to their job um, and, and be part of our community and an expensive place to live. And then we incentivize the private market to do development here too, in our case, uh, by by essentially making the process for them predictable. So it's, it's not like it's a constant haggling over, well, what are you going to do? And I want the third floor to come down, you know, over here on this side. Like we, we make that process a lot more predictable. So but we ask for things in exchange for that, right? So we require that a certain number of your units be affordable in an apartment building in exchange for some, you wanted an additional floor on your building, great. Then you're going to have to provide 15 to 20% of your units as affordable to, to the project. You want to do this thing over here? Okay, well, you're going to, you're going to produce uh, funds equal to a percentage of a construction value to fund a new community park down the street so that the residents who are going to move into this neighborhood and the ones who are already here get benefits from you coming here and not just a new building whether that's, you know, new paved streets, a bike lane, um, undergrounding telephone poles, putting in a community park. We have a whole list of, we have a menu basically that we've put out there and we've put it to developers predictably to say, you, you're going to come to our community. You don't just take what you give back to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I find even on a local level where we don't have a lot of places to put, there's always some interesting creative ways you can help people with, um, with developers, whether it is just putting in a new home or climate issues, even 
Um, you, you can be a lot more creative on a local level than you can be on a legislative level or Congress because, you know, there's not there's more time. You're able to be more flexible on a local level. Agree. Uh, so last question. It's called You Should Run. I think there's a lot. There's over 500,000 elected offices in this country and a lot of people don't have any competition. Why would you encourage people to not give up and run for office, whether it's local or whatever? Because at some point in your time, you've wished that there was, you know, you wish your mayor was different or your council member was different or that they did something you wanted. And rather than wish it, you should just do it. And that's what I decided to do was rather than wish my mayor cared about LGBT issues or wish that my city council made housing more accessible and affordable to people. I just decided one day, well, if other people don't want to do it, I'll do it. And I am doing it. And I think other people, I get lots and lots of people who email me or message me and see the work I'm doing out here and say, I wish you'd move to this city or my city and be my mayor. And I say, no, I wish you would just run to be the mayor of your own city because then we'd have a lot more people getting this work done together. Great. Thank you so much. And lastly, uh, if people are listening, they're going to want to follow you and learn more things. I know I follow you on Twitter, but what are the best ways for people to follow you and learn more about um, Emeryville and learn about yourself? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at John Bowders, J-O-H-N-B-A-U-T-E-R-S. I do have a, a website where I do news updates. That's johnbowders.net. And you can find the news tab and I post updates on things we're building or doing in the community and uh, obviously emeryville.org to follow the city if emeryville and uh, anything we're doing in the greater bay area great thank you so much and if you're listening i hope you're encouraged there's clearly a lot you can do if you run for office too thanks so much john good luck in sunny california i'm jealous <laughs> <laughs> thanks tony you have a great winter <laughs> you too.